Good morning. My name is Katie. I'm a part of our Mill City teaching team here. I love everyone online. I'd hug you if I could. Um, well, Jesus, despite any formal training, he was never formally trained as a rabbi or a teacher, yet he was masterful at it. Why is that? Roman soldiers and disciples alike literally said, nobody ever spoke like this man. He had this authority. It wasn't derived from the teachers of his day. It was immediate. It was felt. So much so that on two specific occasions, thousands of people, and we all know how difficult this would be, simply forgot to eat. Because they were just in awe at his words. He used poetry. He told parables. He shared wisdom proverbs. He used, you know, phrases that were easy for his disciples to memorize. And he asked questions. 225 of them, to be exact, throughout the four Gospels. Robert Stein says this, by use of questions, Jesus forces his listener to become involved in the learning process, drawing out the answer he sought. Instead of declaring it, Jesus impressed his point more convincingly upon their minds. Of these 225 questions, over 100 of them are asked only in the Gospel of John and nowhere else. And the question that we're going to consider today is in John chapter 21. Let's set the scene. So Jesus has resurrected. It's been about a week. He's appeared to his disciples twice. And yet we see that they're a little bit like, what are we supposed to be doing? They leave Jerusalem. They go back to the Sea of Galilee, the Bethsaida, their hometown. And they go fishing because that's what they knew. All night they fish and catch nothing. Dawn breaks. They see a figure on the shore. Friends! Have you caught any fish? They're like, who is this guy? No, we haven't caught anything. Cast your net to the right of the boat for a catch. They do. They can't even pull the net in. There's so many fish. In this moment, John whispers, it is the Lord. Peter, ever doing the impulsive thing, takes his outer garment, puts it back on, jumps into the water and swims 300 feet to face Jesus. And we all know why he did. They haven't discussed his three denials yet. Jesus has talked to Thomas. He's talked to Mary. He's talked to other disciples. And he and Jesus, we can feel the tension is palpable. And in one of the most spectacular exchanges, perhaps in all of the Bible, and maybe in literature, John tells us what happens next. John 21 Verse 15, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You, you know that I love you. 
Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. Now if we're going to interpret the Gospels accurately, I want to give you a couple of principles here. First one is we need to interpret it both horizontally and vertically. Horizontally, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The first three are called the, synop the synoptic Gospels, kind of similar to the word synonymous. They share similar themes. The words that are used are really similar. And then there's John, which is altogether different. But if you and I are, are going to get a complete picture and have our theology a little bit more sound, we need to consider all of the evangelists and when something is said. For example, Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's gospel, Luke describes it, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, with an emphasis on those who are in poverty physically. So is it this one or is it this one? It's both. And if you and I, if we don't read horizontally, we might just think that those who are blessed, it's spiritual poverty and we need to attend to that. Or, or if we just read Luke, we might think, hang on, we just need to look after people who are poor. Yes, the answer is yes and yes. Horizontally. And then vertically. So think of like an elevator. We need to read the Gospels vertically. Meaning, it's not Jesus who wrote an autobiography about himself. Other people gave witness accounts about him. So we have to look at what Jesus said and did and what the evangelist said and did, what John said, how Matthew put it together, what Mark emphasized or not. And what, why does Luke emphasize this? Why does Jesus say the son of man? If we don't look at his teaching and how he picked that up from the Old Testament, we might for a second think, why did you use the Son of Man? What does that even mean? He was using a Jewish subtlety, a teaching method, where you don't just outright exclaim it, you wait for people to get it. And another example of how we need to read and consider what the gospel writers themselves said is, think about this. The word Father. Nobody had ever prayed Father. No pre-Christian Judaism, nobody prayed using the word. It was just too intimate. It was too familiar. The word father is used 65 times in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's used over a hundred times in John. Why is that? We're going to come back to that. Those principles will help us as we go through and interpret what's happening between Peter, John, and Jesus. I love how Dolores Stuffner, she's a contemporary hymnist, she writes this, the word of God is source and seed. It comes to die and sprout and grow. So make your dark earth welcome warm. Root deep the grain God bent to sow. The word of God is breath and life. It comes to heal and wake and save. So let the spirit touch and mend and rouse your dry bones from the grave. The word of God is flesh and grace who comes to sing, to laugh and cry. So dare to be as Jesus was, who came to live and love and die. 
those three kind of themes, we kind of, we're challenged as Jesus is having this conversation with Peter and John listening. We're challenged to live, to love, and die. Firstly, how to live. We're forgiven, but given new work to do. Now, Jesus, in this conversation with Peter, he goes right to where the pain is, as he so often does. That's why so many of us sort of retreat from his advances, because it's like the dentist. You know, we sort of avoid going to the dentist. It's like, wait, there's something, there's something, there's something, until we can avoid the toothache no longer. But Jesus goes right to the heart of it. When he asks, do you love me, Peter? And when Peter gives a yes, the three questions correspond to Peter's three denials. What's interesting is when Peter says, yes, I love you, Jesus doesn't just say, no worries, okay. Pats him on the back. No. Each yes, Jesus issues a new command. He says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He gives him a fresh commission. It's kind of like Christian ministry for any one of us. If we're going to be servants and followers of Jesus, this is what it's rooted in. Somewhere deep down there's a love for Jesus. And he wants to find it in you and in me. He wants to find it and then give us an opportunity to express it. Maybe healing some of the pain and the hurt of the past. And give us new work to do. So he sets Peter on mission. Forgiveness, it wasn't just about Peter feeling relief. It was about him re being reinstated. It wasn't just about being absolved, but about Peter getting involved. Charles Octavius Booth, 1845 to 1924, he lived in Mobile, Alabama. He was a slave. And he was passionate about raising the literacy, the education, the skill level of his black community. He started a church because he knew the church was pivotal to racial uplift. He started two churches and pastored there. And one of them is called Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He, he pastored for a long time there. And that church is actually a national monument because of its pivotal role in the civil rights movement under its 20th pastor, Martin Luther King. And Booth says this in his book, Plain Theology for Plain People. He writes, we all must work toward pursuing people and seeking the lost. It's not the vocation of a few, Jesus inviting Peter into this and us. It's the calling of all. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This means much more than trying to save those that we may chance to meet. Jesus sought the lost. He didn't sit down at ease and wait for them to seek him. He sends him, by way of forgiveness, he sends him with a fresh charge. Tend my sheep, take care of my flock. Those are active words that take effort at us seeking. I was chatting with the Windsor Severance Food Bank this week and they served 118 families in the month of August, which is the largest number outside of Thanksgiving and Christmas ever. Just the cost of living. What if? What if some of the work you and I need to do is to add a little bit of shopping to our list every week and we take it to our local food bank? It's just part of who we are and just part of what we do. What if us looking for opportunities is our neighbor who had surgery and so we make food for them? What if 
It's the person that we know, the coworker or the relative who's despairing and we look for and pray for the opportunity to share how Jesus has turned our life right side up and healed us. What if you're an employer, you notice an employee in need? What if you're a landlord, you notice a tenant? For us to seek out opportunities, Jesus sent Peter on mission and he sends us. We have a city group here called Shining Light with Milo and Mana Miller who are in Europe, but they'll be back for this or <sighs> they'll be back for your city group. Or Brian and Rachel Schultz, it's called Faith and Work. These city groups are focused on you and I thinking outwardly and seeking and looking for opportunities. Not just waiting for them to come our way. So in this conversation, we're challenged to live, forgiven, given new work to do, and we're challenged to love. I, you know, we hear wedding vows, and, you know, we, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, it's kind, and that's sort of romantic, but that's hard work. I feel like the wedding vows should say something like this. Love is painful. Love is hard. Love is going to bring you to your knees, crush you to pieces, make you feel like you want to die. <laughs> and then love doesn't feel like love most of the time. We just have to be in a relationship with anyone to know that, not just a spouse. And Jesus goes to the heart of the Old Testament when he asks, do you love me? He goes to Exodus chapter 20, the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God, in Exodus 20, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. This echoes Jesus' greatest commandment, to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Why? This question, do you love me? It goes right to the heart because our love is, turns up in our idols. That's why it says no other gods. He doesn't give the choice to have no god. It's either the true god or false gods. So what do idols look like? What does it mean to have an idol? It's anything that you and I derive meaning from apart from the one true god. It's when we imagine and when we trust something else to deliver the control or the significance, or the security, or the beauty that only the true God can give. And it's not just if you're a follower of Jesus. This is a human experience. Listen to what Luke Ferry says. Contemporary French philosopher, he says, Everybody seeks some way to face life with confidence and death without fear and regret. Whatever it is, it's a form of salvation. Salvation there, if you're not a Jesus follower, just means happiness, fulfillment, and doing anything necessary to get it. It's when you and I say, if, if only I had that one thing, everything would be fixed. Reformer theologian Martin Luther who said, you know, we only break the other nine commandments because we've broken the first one. It's like when you button your shirt in the morning. You know, you get to the bottom and then you realize, it was out of alignment, and all of the buttons are off. We have to start again. When we don't have our love ordered with the first one, loving him first, everything else gets out of order. It's kind of like, let's say you have a business decision, a business situation, or maybe it's a relationship, and you realize that a small measure of deceit 
will yield considerably more leverage than if you were to share the whole story about the company or about your life. So in that situation, we consider obedience to God and the good of our neighbor as less important than success. So beneath the sin of lying is the bigger issue of idolatry. I love how Tim Keller says this. He says, it could be argued that everything we do wrong, every cruel action, dishonest word, broken promise, self-centered attitude, stems from a conviction deep in our souls that there's something more crucial to our happiness and meaning than the love of God. Maybe it's an idol of comfort or pleasure and it keeps us from holding a job or being addicted to something that satisfies or seems to. Gratifies is probably the more appropriate word. Maybe it's idols of power and control and it leads us to overwork or we're living imbalance in our relationships. Power and approval. Maybe it is control. Seth, um, my amazing husband and my beautiful kids are here, giving everyone a wave. Um, <laughs> Seth said to me not long ago, he said, honey, if you don't think you worry, maybe you're not as self-aware as you think. <laughs> and I thought, I don't worry. I trust Jesus. I pray. Like, I don't. What I didn't, haven't realized is that my, I just thought it was concern. I just thought it was me being a conscientious parent. You know, where my kids go, what movies they watch, who they're with, trying to prevent harm. That was, it's actually been an idol of control for me. And it shows up in lack of trust in God. It shows up in excessive concern or in micromanagement. Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, Peter was in a city group and he still denies even knowing Jesus. I wonder if he was close enough to John. John was around the fire that night. What if John had said to him after he denied Jesus the first time, what if John had said, Pete, don't do this. Come on, remember what the master said. What if he'd had a close enough relationship that someone could have said, hey, idols are actually hard to see in our own lives, but people around us can usually see them. It's kind of like this emoji. <laughs> it's kind of like that. And interestingly enough, you know, Peter received restoration and healing because he was also in a city group. He encountered Jesus. It's not a one-time question, do you love me, more than these. Do you love me? It's a question that we continually need to ask ourselves because our idols change. And they show up in different ways. It's kind of like, I don't know about you, but I find, I feel surprised that things show up again. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a second. I thought I've dealt with this. This, wait, I got that. Okay, Lord, thank you. I'm I'm so glad this is dealt. Wait, I read a book about this. Where's the, I was in a city group for that. What is going on? And then we get more angry because it's showing up again. And we're like, Jesus, Jesus in a prayer sort of way. Um, I just, hang on, I don't, I don't know. I can't, and then, 
And then we get so frustrated that we're like this. And we're like, oh, I can't believe, I can't believe, like, ah, oh, I'm 20 years old. How can I still be dealing with this? I'm 35. I'm 46. I'm 70. How can I still be having this issue? But this isn't how idolatry is helped or healed. If we're humble enough to experience the feedback from others, it really looks more like this. When we come and we say, I just love you. Hang on a second. Actually, I love this. This one. And it keeps coming up. And I don't want to love that one. I mean, I kind of do sometimes, but. Okay, I have a, you know, someone who's invested in my life, Robert Ferguson, a teacher, a mentor, he and his wife Amanda. And he would say, you know, sometimes the best we can offer to God is in our love for him. I actually want to love you. Okay, I just want to love you. Well, um. I don't even know if that's totally honest, Lord. I don't pray. I don't get up. I don't prioritize reading the scripture. I, I don't take time to hear you. Okay, let's take a, a step back again. I want to want to love you. And we get honest about where we are, we answer Jesus' question. That's why the weekly practice this week is to read John 15, 9 to 17, eight verses. You're going to read it every day. And then at the end of the week, you're going to answer the question, honestly, that Jesus is asking. Peter, he asked John, he's asking us, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? That passage is about it's John sharing with us another sort of discourse that no other gospel shares. And he's, it's the moment when Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. And then he gives us a fresh work to do. Nobody prayed using the word Father in the ancient world. No other faith prays using Father in the world today. Nobody. It's too intimate. It's too familiar. Too tender. And yet this is what Jesus introduces. And this is why John uses the word father so many times. Because this is the relationship that you and I are made for. The relationship with a loving father. As the father has loved me, I've loved you. John saying Jesus showed us this love. We enter into this love. A relationship so intimate that we couldn't even, we didn't realize this is what we were made for, and yet Jesus shows us this. This is your weekly practice. In that exchange, it's interesting, Jesus says to Peter, do you agapao me? And, and Peter actually uses a different word for love when he answers. He says, yes, I, I phileo you. Do you agapao me? That is, that's that, the, the love that's the will. It's a decision, it's a determination, it's loyal forever. Do you agapao me? And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. I brotherly affection and sentimentally love you. 
Peter, do you agapao me? Yes, I phileo you, Jesus. And finally, Jesus picks up Peter's word. He says, you phileo me. And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. In his work, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis, he describes familial love, storge, brotherly affection, friendship love, in phileo. And then he describes eros, romantic love. Then he gets to charity is what he calls it. That determined love that never gives up. And he says, all of our loves, our natural loves, with brothers, with romantic partners, with our family, all of those will fail us. They're never enough unless the divine gift love enters into them. He says it this way, natural love is always directed to objects which the lover finds in some way intrinsically lovable. But divine gift love in the person enables him to love that which is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, the sulky, the superior, and the sneering. Jesus' love in us enables us to love with all our heart. Enables us to love things and people that aren't lovely. Because our love isn't enough. If only my wife had more common sense, she shopped less, and she was less moody. If only my roommate was less messy, if only my sibling wasn't so harsh, if only my father was, wasn't so tight-fisted, if my mother was there for me, if my husband was considerate or listened. But in everyone and in ourselves, C.S. Lewis goes on, there is that which requires forbearance, tolerance, forgiveness. The necessity of practicing these virtues at first sets us, it forces us upon the attempt to turn more strictly to let God turn our love into charity. These frets and these rubs, they're beneficial. It may even be that when there are fewest of them, our love does not become charity. When they're plentiful, the necessity of rising above it is obvious. Only those into which love himself has entered will ascend to love himself. I find myself often praying, Jesus, turn my love into yours. We're challenged to live forgiven new work to do. We're challenged to love with all our heart and order that love. And we're challenged to follow, to die. In this conversation, Jesus takes Peter aside, away from all the other disciples because he doesn't want to embarrass him because that's how Jesus is. And we know that because in verse 20, there's only one disciple following, John, which is why John's the only gospel that shares this conversation because he heard it. And Jesus asks him about shepherding. He's a fisherman. What's that shepherding image? Once again, Jesus in his teaching takes us right back to the Old Testament, to Exodus 34, where God is the divine shepherd. Every, a king was considered a shepherd, a royal caretaker of God's people. And ancient shepherds, it wasn't like a big mass of white wool that they saw just counting the revenue that it was going to provide. They knew their sheep intimately. They knew them personally. I love this image. <laughs> it's a mirror, actually, of us. And if you look closely, they look like they're all the same, but if you look closely, the eyes are set a little different. The noses are a little wider, a little narrower. He knew, an ancient shepherd knew his sheep personally. Simon, Perry, Jeff, Bruce, 
Beth, Jeremy, Rachel, and he knew them by name. I was saying, Peter, I'm calling you into this holy vocation with me of shepherding. The supreme test of any shepherd is when there's a moment of threat. He is faced, she is faced with a choice. When the sheep are threatened, what will the shepherd do? Save their own reputation or give their life for the sheep? Peter was ready to die for Jesus. He showed that because he took the sword out and he cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. He just wanted it to look the way he wanted it to look. He wasn't ready for a naked savior on a cross. That wasn't the following he was expecting, and it's not the following we expect. We want things to turn out the way we want. But that isn't the way. It's when we, our singleness, our marriage, we say, it doesn't have to be my way. Help me find and see your way. And our health, our business, our parents, children. It's not my way. You have the way and you are the way. It looks like letting go and dying. Did Peter get it? We wonder. The Gospel of Mark is written as Peter's memoirs. It's his preaching. And Peter, it isn't until Mark chapter 8 that any discussion of what discipleship even looks like comes up. Because it's only after Mark 8 verse 30 where Jesus says, I have to suffer and die for you. And then Peter says, now this is what it looks like to be a disciple. He got it. And we know he got it because he was crucified like his Savior. And tradition says upside down because he didn't want it to be the same way as Jesus. Peter got it. And it wasn't because he tried. And it wasn't because he was smart or because he was great. It was because he recognized the love of the shepherd. And I wonder if you're willing today too. Jesus calling your name right now in this moment. You are so valuable to him. Will you say yes to the shepherd? Maybe it's the first time, for the very first time. Maybe your love for Jesus feels like it's grown a little bit stale. And you might say yes to the shepherd again. How could we refuse a love so compelling? Let me pray for you. Father, loving Father, we open our hearts to you. We pray today that our hearts would receive deep the seed you bend down now to sow. Help us say yes to the shepherd, the good shepherd, who gave everything and has nothing left. Help us respond.